This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe, hit the red button. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review. This allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Donald Lehman. Dr. Donald Lehman is the professor emeritus in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. He's internationally recognized for his research about dietary protein and amino acids. He has done extensive research focusing on muscle development and in studies of metabolic regulation for obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Lehman has over 120 peer reviewed research publications and is the head of Department of Foods and Nutrition. Associate Dean of the College of Agriculture, has a master's degree in biochemistry and a doctorate degree in nutrition and biochemistry. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Donald Lehman. You will see in the conversation that he is not a fan of the carnivore diet. I know a lot of people ask me why I interview people that are not in the carnivore world of things. And I purposely do this because I want us to always grow and further our knowledge and even test our kind of silo of information. To see if what we're doing is what makes sense for us. I know for me, whoever I research or look into, meat only carnivore does the best for my body. And I see it in my blood work, as well as a lot of my physical and mental symptoms. But that doesn't mean that it works for everybody. Sometimes adding a little bit of plants or sometimes doing a little difference in your carnivore diet may be more beneficial. As you see in our conversation, Dr. Lehman talks about the differences in proteins, whether it's from a plant based diet or a meat. Based diet, there's certain nuances that we should really look at, especially when it comes to amino acids. He talks about the importance of leucine and then talks about the distribution. If you follow my content for a while, you know that I'm not the biggest fan of doing one meal a day. And if you listen to this conversation, we learn one more reason why one meal a day may not be ideal for you long term. If you're looking to preserve muscle mass, and I think we all are because that is the way that we can have longevity, you don't want to miss this full conversation as he talks about all the different nuances of how to maintain muscle mass while even lose, losing fat. I try to get into every single nuance and crevice and ask all the questions I could to help. Support you get to better health. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Donald Lehman. I'm very excited to have you on today. I've heard so many great things about all your content around protein. For the people that、uh, may not know you, if you can introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm a retired professor. So I was at the University of Illinois, professor of nutrition biochemistry for 35 years. I actually retired in 2012,、uh, and I'm working a lot now with、uh, food companies and people. 
people interested in protein. So my background is biochemistry and nutrition, and I've been at it for like 40 some years now. <laughs> I just want to jump straight into the recommendations for protein. Uh, you know, the RDA or the recommend daily allowance uh, really recommends about, I think it's 0.4 grams per pound of um, ideal body weight. What do you think of that recommendation? Do you think it's sufficient? Is that good for most people? I think that what people need to understand is that the RDAs by definition are the minimum amount to prevent deficiency. And so we talk about things like vitamin C, and there's an RDA that prevents scurvy, but everybody takes more vitamin C than that. Vitamin D prevents rickets, but people take five times that RDA. And so it's important to recognize that the RDA for protein prevents a deficiency. Short-term measures the deficiency measured by nitrogen balance. And I think those of us who work in the protein field realize that like vitamin C or like vitamin D, Uh, they're probably optimum levels of protein that are above that minimum. What do you think are the optimum levels? Is there a difference for male and female, how often you work out? Um, And as we age, is there a difference? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) All of the above. Um, You know, I think think what we've learned, um, the, the origins of the the protein requirement in the RDA is really with growing children. And we measure that by growth. And there's always been the belief that once you stop growing, you probably needed less protein. But what we've learned in the last two decades is that as we get older, the efficiency also goes down as you're trying to develop muscle mass. When you're under stress, like for weight loss or uh, surgery or bed rest, our needs go up. And so I think most of us who work in the field now think that the range, so, you know, I always have to translate it, I think in grams per, you know, grams per kg, but uh, the range for, uh, I think most of us now think it ought to be in more like uh, 0.5 grams up to 0.8 grams per pound. So quite a bit higher than that 0.4 minimum. We think that's really more the optimum range. Do you think there's a certain point where, we are eating too much protein or is there no such thing? Again, one has to think about what you're after. People have always said, well, it's bad for your heart. I mean, your kidneys or it's bad for your liver. We know that's simply not true. Uh, So all of that is old thinking that has been proved not to be true. But again, my, my example of other nutrients, we know that for every nutrient, there's a range that's healthy. We know that oxygen or water is toxic at some level, but obviously essential. So protein, uh, we know that there's a minimum, the RDA, 0.8 grams per kg. Most of the research has shown that protein is safe up to around three grams per kg. That's that's 1.3 grams per pound. I mean, those are enormous numbers. Very few people can eat it. So, you know, your basic answer to your question is protein has so much satiety value uh, that people can't really overeat it. You simply get tired of it. You know, I the example I always like to, to, to give is, you know, if you're eating a dinner and you're basically full and somebody brings out chocolate cake, you'll eat more. But if somebody brings out another steak, you're not going to touch it. (laughs) Protein just simply, you get tired of eating it. Uh, And so I I think from a practical standpoint, people just can't simply can't eat too much. You know, are there people who eat more than they need? Sure. (laughs) And then what does that look like? I'm part of the meat-based community where some people will say there's too much uric acid or too much nitrogen or too much waste from eating too much protein. The GFR, the, the kidney markers may show less functioning. Do you think those are some of the signs of eating too much protein? What are your thoughts? Um, I don't believe basically any of what you just said. (laughs) Uh, From a nitrogen standpoint, one of the things you have to think about is you know, is there an underlying metabolic problem like a kidney disease, then you have to be concerned with it. Um, The other is if you do a short-term transition. So if you take somebody who's vegan 
eating 40 grams a day and you give them 150 grams, chances are they're going to show some nitrogen problems or some ammonia problems for a day or two. So, you know, if you're making a transition, you've got to do it over a week or so uh, if you're going from a real low level to a high level. Um, It will also cause some GI disorders. Protein draws more water into the GI tract. So most people on higher protein diets need to realize they need more fluids. But in general, it's safe at quite high levels. One of the things you see in the athletic world is recommendations of a gram per pound or, or you know, pretty high levels. Uh, most of us who work in muscle development realize that from a muscle development standpoint, it probably peaks out at around 0.8 grams per pound, 1.8 grams per kg. You'll see a lot of athletes taking 2.2 grams per kg, you know, quite a bit more than that. From a muscle development standpoint, there's no data to support that. However, if you want to look at it from a metabolic standpoint, for example, the keto people or the carnivore people, if you're trying to avoid carbs, uh, I would probably argue that you're to some level better off replacing carbs with protein than you are replacing it with fat. And so, you know, there may be reasons to have 2.2 grams per kg of protein, but from a muscle development standpoint, we know that that plateaus out at about 0.8 grams per pound. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is maybe from a health perspective, there's no true adverse effects of eating more protein than say the recommended amount, but maybe from a muscle synthesis, there's won't be additional benefit after a certain amount. Right. You're losing efficiency. Uh, I mean, protein is one of the most expensive parts of the diet. So eating a lot of extra protein that you don't really get a metabolic benefit from doesn't really matter. So, you know, I, I really never recommend, I mean, a, one gram per pound is really as high as I would ever recommend. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Is there a certain amount you recommend as you age? Um, Let's say all things are equal. You know, if I'm in my 60s versus when I'm in my 30s, what's the difference? How much more should I be eating as I age? Sure. Um, So we definitely know that the efficiency goes down with age. We don't have really hard lines, but we know that bone loss, muscle loss starts becoming detectable at around 40. Uh, Doug Patton Jones and I have done some research in the late 30s. So we think there's sort of this honeymoon period from about 20 to 35, where, you know, you can, your body, you're so healthy that you can get along with relatively low proteins if you Mm -hmm. choose to, or higher, you're, you're metabolically more flexible. But By the time we get into the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, we know that it's decreasing efficiency. Uh, Most of the research has been done comparing 25-year-olds versus 65-year-olds. So we know there's a clear distinction in efficiency there. There really hasn't been a lot done with 40-year-olds. So we don't quite know how that transition occurs. So if uh, compared to my 25-year-old self, how much more should I be eating? And I know I keep sticking at this, but. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great question. Um, personally, if you look at the requirements, uh, if you're a very young child, the requirement is 2.2 grams per kg. Right. And if you look on it out to 12 years of age, it's still 1.2. And the question is, does it ever really go below that? Uh, I would argue that it doesn't. And so the idea that a 25-year-old can meet nitrogen balance in a short term, the RDA at 0.8 grams per kg, you know, is that real or is that just short term? You know, one of the things we know is that the more physically active you are, the more efficient you are with protein. 
So one of the things that a 25-year-old tends to be more physically active than a 65-year-old, so they can get along with less protein, less their muscles are healthier. So again, we don't have a real hard line about that, but I personally never recommend less than 1.2 grams per kg for any age. Okay. In terms of whether it's vegan proteins or animal-based proteins or whey proteins and, and shakes, do they all absorb similarly? Uh, great question. Um, so there's, I always think about those comparisons at three or four different levels. So there's quantity of protein, quality of protein, bioavailability of protein and distribution of protein, you know, so if you're eating 1.8 grams per kg, if you're eating quite a lot, those things all kind of blend out. If you're vegan, they all start becoming more important. Bioavailability, do you absorb it the same? Uh, If you're talking about comparing something like a soy protein isolate versus a milk protein isolate, they both are going to absorb around 95, 98%. So about the same. But if you're talking about wheat protein uh, versus meat protein, the meat protein is going to be about 95% digestible and the wheat protein is going to be about 50% digestible. And so if it's, if it's a plant-based protein in the native plant form, chances are it's, it's less than 40% absorbable. It's going to be bound to the fiber. We don't digest the fiber. And so it has low bioavailability, but again, Vegetable protein that are isolated and purified are pretty high. Okay. Native form ones, lentils, beans, nuts, they're going to have lower bioavailability, probably at least 40% less than what you think is there. Okay. So if I was vegan, it's probably a safer route to drink those like pea protein powders. Is that what you're saying? Okay. If I was, if I'm recommending to vegans, A, it's hard to be vegan and get enough protein without using a powder. Uh, so I would definitely recommend uh, some sort of a protein powder supplement so that they can get enough essential amino acids. It's extremely hard to be vegan and just eat plants and get enough protein. It's so interesting because in the carnivore space, it's we want to recommend more whole foods and eat the real meats and things to get all the amino acids in its balanced form. But in the plant-based world, it's you really have to supplement to even find, I guess, a better balance. But I mean, the theory about the whole foods, the natural foods still holds. I mean, there's a lot of vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals in the plants But when you start getting to the protein area, now you've got a real problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why you find a lot more vegans between 20 and 40 than you do at 60. Again, for the same reason, there's this honeymoon period where you can exist if you're physically active and healthy on a very low protein diet when you're young. But as you start getting into your 40s, that's going to catch up with you. Oh, that's so fascinating. I never even considered that with the vegan role. You're right. I mean, there's a lot of younger people that are vegan. I mean, and I, yeah, I mean, you typically find 30, you know, 20 year olds, 30 year olds who are talking about it. You don't very often find 65 year olds who are talking about being vegan because it's just not very healthy. I fully agree. I just wanted to play devil's advocate. Um, Let's talk a little bit about protein and weight maintenance. Uh, What does protein have to do with weight maintenance, weight loss? So that's actually an area we're quite well known for. As we started looking at protein, we sort of discovered the issue of the branched chain amino acid leucine stimulating protein synthesis and muscle. Uh, And as we started thinking about some of the older concepts of protein sparing modified fasts and and even things like the zone diet with Barry Sears and distribution, we started realizing that to protect muscle during a catabolic period, we needed to think about the protein distribution. One, One of the things we always hear about with weight loss is that you decrease your resting metabolism. As you lose weight and you lose lean tissues, you lose your metabolic rate. You're changing your metabolic rate. Um, And so one of the things that we know is if you just go into a starvation and lose weight, you lose weight rapidly, but you lose about 50-50 between fat and lean. And so you're decreasing your metabolic rate. 
Uh, if you add protein to that, what we know is we can blunt about half of that loss. So we did those studies. We showed that if you increase your protein from that 0.8 gram, the RDA up to 1.6 grams, double it, what we can do is cut the lean mass loss in half. And then what we also were the first to show is if you add exercise on top of that combination of, of endurance and resistance, that you can reduce the lean loss to about 5%. So wow. basically with a combination of protein and resistance exercise, we can make a weight loss 100% fat. And so you don't decrease your metabolic rate. So those are areas, those are some studies that we published that we're quite well known for. And those were, they're a little different look at lower carb diets, but they're basically a protein centric, muscle centric look at, uh, at weight loss. And we know if we can protect muscle during weight loss, we have a lot better chance of being successful long-term. And then when in these studies, was there a lever of fat? So was it lean proteins or was it just doesn't matter? So we, it's protein. We, we chose to try to be as acceptable to the nutrition community as possible. Okay. So what we did is our control, our control study was the RDA was the, was the U S RDA, okay. you know, it was basically the food guide pyramid, which recommended, uh, 55% carbs and 30% fat and 15% protein. So when we designed our study, we kept the fat constant and just manipulated carbs and protein. Gotcha. So that's how we did all of our studies. So all of our studies were run at 30% fat. Um, I'm not particularly hung up on fat. I think fat between 30% and 40% of calories is fine. We targeted the RDA for carbohydrates, which was 130 grams per day. Most people don't even know there's an RDA for carbohydrates. In fact, if you look at dietary guidelines, the dietary guidelines don't even include the RDA. We talk about the RDA for protein like it's some magic number. Well, the RDA for carbohydrates is 130 grams per day, and yet the recommendation is nearly twice that. Right. So we don't even include the RDA in the recommendation. So, you know, it's it's kind of like, well, we'll pick and choose what we think the RDA really means. <laughs> There's a lot of carnivores that will eat leaner proteins and not really focus on the fat, especially if they were to eat in terms of total calories, if they went 60% protein and 40% fat and very, very little carbs, if any. If they eat that way, a lot of people's blood sugar will start spiking a little bit. Um, I mean, they'll be maybe in the hundreds or low hundreds. And a lot of times they won't be able to sleep through the night and they just don't feel as well with these leaner meats. Um, just to give you a comparison, maybe they're eating chicken thighs. I mean, I know that's not really, really lean, but they're not eating the ribeyes with added yeah. butter. Why is that happening in the middle of the night? Some people say that carnivore just does not allow them to sleep in the night. Some people wear the CGMs, they see a dip in their blood sugar, and then it spikes up really quickly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I am definitely not an expert in carnivore diets. I've not directly studied them. So uh, I'll give you some metabolic thoughts okay. from what we've seen. And, and some of it's from animal studies. Um, one of the things that with a higher protein, low carb diet, one of the things we always see is that humans and animals will run somewhat higher fasting blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And that's because during the fasting periods, they're not relying on glycogen, they're relying on gluconeogenesis. Right. So they've got a gluconeogenic effect. Um, as far as 60% uh, protein, 40% fat, metabolically, uh, you know, we used to use a study like that in the final exam in our senior level and our PhD exam at the University of Illinois, just because it's such a screwy metabolic outcome. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it for anyone, frankly. Uh, basically, what you're making the body do is metabolize a lot of protein all of the time. Uh, we talked about nitrogen handling, we talked about fluid balances. It's just a very screwy thing to do. The okay. body needs around 100 grams of carbs every day. And if you don't eat them, they're going to come from protein. And that's a very inefficient thing to do. So I recommend to people that 
you know, why not eat 50, 60, 100 grams of carbs and bring your protein down a little bit? Um, carnivores don't like it. But again, when you start screwing around with metabolism to that level, you can get some weird things happening. Some people will adapt okay. Some people will get spikes. Some people will find it very uncomfortable. You know, I, 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 would, I just wouldn't recommend it. Some people may get along okay, but the majority are going to feel pretty bad, I think. What if we were to use fat as the energy source? So if we were to use the beta-hydroxybutyrate and other fatty acids and ketones for energy, instead of tapping so much into gluconeogenesis, if we're, I've noticed that a lot of the carnivores that get into a higher, higher ketogenic state, they're able to sleep better through the night. They don't have as much of those hypoglycemic effects in the night and their blood sugar... yeah. So I, what I'm assuming you you met you said uh, is that so you're lowering the protein down and re- increasing the fat. Yeah. Yes. Right. So you know I I think there's a lot of evidence from the keto. Uh, there's been a lot more studies of keto diets than there have been of carnivore diets. Yes. So we've got a lot of data about that, and there's no reason the body can't function on fat. The bo- fat is by far the preferred fuel of the body, fasting or not. So fat is a good fuel. Uh, The body still has to generate carbohydrates. You know, the keto people will say, well, the brain uses ketone. Well, it can, but it doesn't. It still needs carbohydrates. Uh, And, you know, if you, there's a lot of interesting studies back in the old days that where people were looking at, you know, in starvation, what caused death? Mm. And basically, uh, it happens when the body has to convert too much protein into carbs into energy. It can't do it fast enough. And so, you know, fat is a good energy source. Uh, There's a lot of keto diet data out there. Seems to be perfectly fine. What I would indicate, though, for people is we did a lot of studies using 130 grams of carbs per day, 30 grams of fat. And we get exactly the same outcomes across the board. We get the same weight losses. We get the same metabolic changes, the same blood lipids, the same uh, blood sugar changes. So um, if that is is an appealing diet to you, fine. But the evidence is the majority of people who go on a keto diet, leave it within six months. Oh, interesting. I I wasn't aware of that. And I I can see that. I I think that makes sense. I really think that the gap with the whole wellness with physical health is if people can moderate 100 to 130 grams of carbohydrates in a healthy way, I I absolutely agree. I think there's a way that people can add that amount of carbohydrates. It's just a lot of people that are in the carnivore space, especially carnivore, may have metabolic syndrome, may have a poor relationship with food. And that's where even 10 uh, grams of carbs then ends up flooding in a lot of binging and other things. I I completely, you know, if it, if it's a way that allows you to control your appetite and your, or whatever it is, but, but again, we have, we've specifically studied metabolic syndrome and we know we will get the same effects decreasing it down to 130 as going to 25. Right. And I believe that. So my husband, he's a true moderator. So he can eat carbs without having the, I need to go back in the pantry. He yeah. eats about 150 grams of carbs on average. And he is seeing as beautiful markers as me who barely eats carbs. So I fully, I, I, I fully see that's, that. That's my style. I, I am an, I'm an anaerobic exerciser. I play okay. singles tennis. And so I don't feel good if I don't have carbs in my diet. So I'm probably in the 180 grams per day. And the way I teach people about it is that everyone, I th- you need about 100 grams of carbs per day and you will earn about 60 grams per hour of exercise. So, you know, that's how you should add it up the average Americans eating over 300 grams of carbs per day, which means they need at least three hours of exercise per day to accommodate that. And they're not getting it. (laughs) Right. But why is it that some keto and carnivore folks, maybe that their blood sugar in the morning is a little bit higher. Is that a concern where they're resting or they're fasting blood sugars, maybe in the high nineties, maybe low hundreds? 
and they're not really eating many carbs. Again, that's what we always see with higher protein. Okay. If you if you're low carb, you're basically not using glycogen during mm-hmm. your fasting period. So if you follow a individual on a high carb diet, they basically are using glycogen through the night. And by the time they wake up in the morning, they've more than 50% depleted their liver glycogen and they're going to have low blood sugar. So it'll probably be down close to 70 and they're hungry. But Mm -hmm. if you have a higher protein diet, low carb, now they're using gluconeogenesis to sustain their glucose needs around the clock. And it's very stable, but when they wake up in the morning, it will be higher. And that's a good thing. They're less hungry. Right. So whether it's humans or animals, we've shown that uh, they people or animals on higher protein, lower carbs will wake up with a higher blood sugar. But if you look at A1C, if you look at the other types of things, it's not higher. You're not sure. getting the spikes. It's just staying stable. Right. No, no. no. And, and I see that too. Um, in terms of the exercise in your studies, how how much exercise do they need to do in to be at that 5% of, you know, I guess, muscle sparing. So when we did the study, we were using uh, midlife women. So our women were late thirties to 60 range overweight uh, in the weight loss study. So they're not typical gym rats. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of going to the gym wasn't something they wanted to do. So what we designed was what we thought was a minimum threshold So basically, they were required to walk uh, at least 30 minutes, five days a week. So there's data behind that, how many minutes per week you have to do, you know, that sort of 360 kind of accumulation. And then we had them doing, now I've lost it for a minute, two or three days. Uh, I believe it was only two days, but I'll say three days of a resistance routine that was 50% yoga, stretching. Uh, and about 50% Nautilus machines, but we didn't require them to put any weights on them. So it was basically all based on stretch and range of motion. So what people ignore is if you're really trying to build big muscles, you need heavy weights. But if you're trying to protect muscle, what you need is stretch. And a lot of people don't recognize that if you're doing a biceps curl, for example, you get as much or more effect, you know, you, you've got the curl, the concentric motion, but then you've got the eccentric motion. And when you take it down, you actually get more effect from the stretch, the eccentric motion than you do from the concentric. Wow. So none of these people were doing any heavy lifting or resistance. No heavy lifting. It was, it was, it was uh, instructed yoga for about 12 to 15 minutes. And then they had about a 15 to 20 minute uh, eight station uh, Nautilus uh, program, and they could choose the weight from zero to whatever they felt comfortable with. So it wasn't heavy weights in any way, but just by putting that level of stretch and physical activity, the walking plus that, we were able to cut their, and the protein, we were able to cut their lean mass loss to 5%. And 3% is wow. the absolute minimum because 3% of lean tissue would go with, if you're losing fat, just the, the structure of the fat will cause you to lose 3% lean tissue. So we're basically at total maintenance of lean tissue. You know, they're, they, you know midlife women didn't want to lift weights. And so this is absolute minimum. And so I, I always tell people, you know, you don't have to go to a gym, learn to do yoga, learn to do Pilates, learn to stretch mm-hmm. every day. Those are critical issues as you get older. If they wanted to build more muscle, then would after this, I guess, whole experiment, would you then recommend them to? It's absolutely clear. Stu Phillips and a lot of, you know, a lot of people out there have done a lot of research that if you're trying to build muscle, if you're trying to get hypertrophy, it's all about resistance training. Okay. So, you know. 75% of the effect is resistance exercise and proteins, maybe 25%. Um, the way to think about it, protein is that you need to have an adequate amount, but more protein won't make you bigger muscles. It might make you have a bigger liver or kidney, you know, you know, DEXA lean tissue might be higher, but it's not muscle. Uh, muscle is resistance exercise. 
Okay. Um, you've talked about protein stimulating just phase one of insulin versus carbs and stimulating the two different phases. Can you talk a little bit about what the difference is? So first of all, the carb glucose um, stimulates insulin release. We know that. But if you actually look at the pancreas, there are basically vesicles inside of the pancreas and they store insulin. So there is preformed insulin sitting in the pancreas. And so when glucose begins to show up in the portal blood, the pancreas will release this preformed and you get an initial spike. And then as your blood sugar continues to go up, what you get is a secondary long curve. And what we know from diabetes, type two diabetes, is the, the pancreas loses that effect. What you lose is the first phase disappears, the pancreas isn't reacting correctly. And what you get is an overshoot and much longer second phase. When people started talking about protein, a lot of the original studies were done where they were infusing like leucine or alanine or things directly in the blood. And what you get is sort of hyperglycemic responses and ex excess insulin. But when you look at it coming in orally, the way people actually eat, what you find out is that protein only causes this phase one release. And we believe the reason for that is insulin is also required for muscle protein synthesis. It's a combination of, of calories, you know, ATP, insulin, uh, leucine, et cetera. And it all has to sort of be balanced. So a carnivore will get muscle fine because the protein will cause an insulin release, but protein never causes phase two. It's only glucose that causes that phase two response. So when carnivores, again, have that higher blood sugar, it's not as much of a concern, especially when we just mentioned the A1C is still relatively in the normal range. So it's not surprising to me that if they're not having any car, you know, you're going to get an insulin response. And if you have no carbs that go with it, you might see a low post-meal, low blood sugar. Uh, but if you look at the fasting, you know, wake up in the morning, chances are it'll be high, a little higher because you're using gluconeogenesis. So, you know, you kind of, again, you're, you're distorting metabolism quite a ways. I look at a vegan and I look at carnivore and I think if you're going to distort metabolism, those are probably the two biggest examples you can come up with. <laughs> and the, the body's not really designed to, it can accommodate it, but it's not really designed to do that. In terms of the wellness space, there's a lot of information about different amino acids doing different things. There's, for example, there's thoughts of if you eat too much uh, muscle meat, there's way too much methionine over glycine. Um, there are the, the conversations about the branch chain amino acids. What are your thoughts about all these picking out certain amino acids? Is there truth in, should we, can we almost biohack our health by picking out certain amino acids? Is it better just to eat the, the way that nature makes these um, amino acids in our foods? What are your thoughts with all of that? I think one of the reasons that we have a protein requirement versus amino acid requirements is we simply don't know enough. <laughs> but one of the comments I always like making is we really do need to have essential amino acid requirements. We don't actually have a protein requirement. What we have is requirements for nine essential amino acids. Right. It's kind of like saying, you know, we need a vitamin pill. Well, we really don't need the pill. What we need are the 12 vitamins inside the pill. Likewise, we have no need for protein. What we need are essential amino acids. But then you start getting into, well, how much leucine do you need and how much tryptophan and how much threonine and how much lysine and how much methionine? Um, I think we have a pretty good handle on the leucine question right now. If you look at the leucine data for, relative to an RDA, and the protein requirement, it would suggest we only need 2.5 grams of leucine per day. But what our research and a lot of other people have shown is you need two and a half to three grams per meal. It's a meal distribution issue. So instead of 2.5 per day, what we need is eight and nine grams per day. So we really need a focus on essential amino acids. Uh, lysine is always deficient in grains. And so the more vegan we become, the more concerned you have to have. Again, it's protein quantity, 
But if the quantity is not high enough, then quality becomes really important right. and distribution becomes important. So, you know, those are all things that I'm very interested in. I'm actually working with a group called Wise Code, and we're trying to develop tables where we can actually look at the essential amino acid requirements mm -hmm. in foods as opposed to just the total protein. Because as we become more interested in plant-based diets, these issues are going to become very important. Oh, and true. You know, does, a, does the average mother know that the almond milk she's giving her six-year-old has no protein in it at all? Right. And the protein that there isn't available, you know, does the average mother know that the almond milk she's using is so deficient in lysine that they would have to use almost 30 ounces of milk with the cereal to make it balanced? Uh, it's sort of like these are issues that are going to become an issue. You raised the question of methionine, and that's a good one. And I think there is a methionine story yet to be told. We don't really know. Okay. And my interest in it is actually, we currently talk about sulfur amino acids, which is the combination of methionine and cysteine. Cysteine is considered non-essential because you can make it from methionine, but the reality is cysteine is the direct precursor to the anti-inflammatory glu uh, uh, glutathione and also the nerve agent of taurine. Uh, and so, I think that the balance of methionine and cysteine is really critical and nobody's thinking about that yet. So we're trying to unfold some of that type of thinking. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think we do, the next stage of understanding quote protein requirement is we need to understand amino acid requirements. And we need to recognize that we have requirements for each of these amino acids and perhaps even things like arginine and, and glycine, which aren't considered essential. What's the balance of those? And from your research, um, what, what is a way that we can balance that? Is it a certain meat? Is it, have you found anything to, I guess, naturally balance that in the most optimal ways? Uh, lysine, lysine uh, is primarily available in animal proteins. And so when I think of complementary proteins, I think about using a plant-based protein with an animal-based protein. Okay. You know, if people want to have less animal protein, that's fine, but it's still hard to do it with no animal protein. So, you know, using grains with some dairy or cheese or, or eggs or meats or fish or something of that, that balances it out. You know, there's reasons why we have a roast beef sandwich, a grain and a meat. You know, we have uh, milk on cereal. I, I mean, those are, those are balancing aspects. Uh, the methionine issue, I just don't know. Um, you know, one of the things that I've done quite a lot of research on is looking at breast milk. And if you look at one of the primary proteins in breast milk, it's alpha-lactalbumin. And alpha-lactalbumin uh, has, has, has a cysteine to methionine ratio of four to one, where in most foods, the ratio is one to one or two to one or four to one, the other direction. And so, you know, I think that, you know, just looking at evolution, why did breast milk end up having such a high cysteine level in it uh, and lower methionine? I think those are interesting. Frankly, I don't know the answer. I think it's, I think it's something that research needs to unfold. And frankly, there's not a lot looking at it. There's, there's a fair amount of research looking at methionine devoid diets. And we know there's some benefit to that, uh, but that's not sustainable. So we know that's, you know, that might have an acute effect, but uh, you know, the animal data there probably doesn't translate into a human outcome. But uh, I, you know, I, I think methionine is still a question. And it's one of the reasons that I don't recommend carnivore type diets. I don't, we just don't know the long-term implications of having three grams per kg of protein forever. And, you know, I think some people are okay, but uh, I don't recommend it. I usually recommend um, a ketogenic version of a carnivore diet. So where the protein isn't exorbitantly high, I think I don't recommend normally above one gram per one pound of ideal body weight. Usually it's about 0 0.8 grams um, so that then you can up the fat lever and you're not over consuming calories. What's interesting about 
what you just brought up with all the amino acids is when I looked into the protein and amino acid requirements and all the, um, the absorption testing that they have, like the dias, the, the PD cast and the absorption rate of all of that, everything is based on breast milk. So from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the way that they figured out the amino acid requirements for adults was they, they use the gold standard of breast milk. And then they use the proportions of the amino acids in these breast milk. And then they just, I guess, multiplied it for then the adult and found the amino acids in that way. And that's, that's basically true. They actually originated, they actually began with egg. Egg was actually, oh, okay. and then it evolved as we knew more about breast milk. So definitely for children, the breast milk number is being used, but we still use a combination. A okay. lot of it still comes from egg protein. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, egg protein was considered the actual gold standard. Uh, and again, egg white was available. So that was the gold standard for all the early testing. Well, what I find interesting is as much as children, they drink breast milk, I, as we talked about, our bodies aren't as efficient at using protein. So I wonder if the amino acids is even correct as an adult when we actually need more because we're not yeah. breaking down. One of the examples I always like using is histidine, one of the essential amino acids. Uh, and it, it's absolutely essential in infants, but it has never been shown to actually be essential in adults. And one of the things that is inherent in the PD-CAS dyad scores is that it's the limiting amino acid in the protein. So if you look at soy protein, the limiting amino acid is methionine, but the limiting amino acid in milk is histidine, but nobody's ever shown it to be limiting. And so you're comparing apples and oranges, but if you compare soy to whey protein on methionine, what you find is that whey protein is 250 times better, 2.5 times better. If you compare it on lysine to lysine, compare it directly, it's 2.5 times better. Uh, but if you compare it on that limiting amino acid, it looks like it's only about 15 to 20% right. better. So those are distorting it. And I mentioned wise code earlier, what we're doing is trying to develop uh, direct amino acid comparisons. So as you construct a meal, how much lysine is actually there? If you're using soy milk, what do you have to do to get to it? If you're trying to you know, get your lysine or methionine requirement, if you're using pea protein with uh, wheat protein or rice protein, what do you actually have to do to get your requirement? So just talking about total protein from a, from a label on the box, um, that's an extrapolation of an old method of called right. Keldahl nitrogen determination that doesn't tell you anything about the actual protein in the box or the, or the container. You know, it's easy to manipulate numbers to make it seem like, oh, this amount of peanut butter and wheat bread has the same amount of protein as this one piece of steak. And, yeah. but if you break it down into amino acids, then you reveal a lot more of the data and the lack of information. So I think that is truly very needed and it's so beneficial. So thank you for that. Yeah. So we're looking at those essential amino acids relative to nutrient density. So it's okay. an issue of how much per calorie are you getting? Mm-hmm. So your peanut butter, okay, it's okay, but you can't eat enough of it to get to your protein needs, almonds, nuts, you know, you, you can't eat enough, you know, and Quinoa, it takes to get to a leucine level for muscle stimulation, takes seven and a half cups. I mean, that's what, those are the kinds of pieces of information that people need to make an informed decision. You know, it's just not saying, well, my quinoa has all the essential amino acids. Well, it probably does, but they're not in the right proportion and you can't eat nearly enough to get to it. And so those are the kinds of things we're hoping people will get. And the other thing that we know is that the the food the USDA food tables are terribly out of date. So if you go to three different companies and ask about the amino acid content of pea protein, you'll get three different numbers. Right. And so what we're trying to do is generate accurate numbers done in the same lab uh, where we can compare and say, well, this is what it's going to likely have. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's a project that's ongoing, but it's moving along well. And we think that's the next sort of level of knowledge that we need. And, and like I said earlier, especially as we talk more about plant-based diets, 
we're going to have to know a lot more about this. I love this. And where would this data be held? I mean, would it be on a website? Is it so initially, it's going to be research data. So okay. it'll be a table that will things that will make available uh, to researchers to test, make sure that uh, it functions the way we think it is. And then we'll release it probably be first release the companies companies will make comparisons. Okay. Uh, a company like uh, let's take Walmart, for example, they can tell you the the quality and the sales, the basically the nutrient density, the cost efficiency of every inch of their shelf space. But in their food area, they can't tell you anything. And so they're interested in things like this. So we're we're actually working with uh, Whole Foods and Walmart and some of these. To, we're actually getting their data sets and their food records, their SKU numbers are what we're working with. That, that's pretty cool. Um, I can't imagine the plant-based companies liking the data that you're going to be coming up with, though. But They may or may not, but the reality is it's going to be critical to them. Yes. You know, how are they going to market? How are they going to... One of the things to recognize, and there's been a lot of survey data, we know in the U.S. that people only get about 30 to 45 grams of protein per day from plant-based sources. And so all of the rest comes from animal based. Mm-hmm. So currently in the US, 60 to 75% of proteins coming from animal-based foods. So if we shift to more plant, what's that mean? Or does that mean we're going to drop the quantity? Because we're certainly going to drop the quality. And so we're going to start doing all of those things at the same time. What's the outcome? Nobody's ever studied that. There's the belief from sort of theoretical that vegetarian diets are great, and they are, but most people are highly skilled and very knowledgeable. The average American can't do that. Right. They don't and, have the food skills to make that work. Right, right. And I, I was plant-based for 12 years, and I didn't know that I needed a supplement B12, and it probably affected a lot of my mood imbalances and energy levels. My concern is that as the plant-based community learns of these gaps, what if they start fortifying these foods with it? I mean, would it even be the same level or quality of protein or amino it's acids? A, it's a, I mean, it's a possibility. We have actually done that. We've, okay. did, we've done basic studies with animals. We've done studies with humans, Doug Patton Jones, others, Stu Phillips have done studies. We know that we can supplement the leucine level on top of a, of a lower protein meal or a lower protein quality and get the effect. So uh, it's been used in hospital situations where calories are limiting. And so I think you're right. I think it will occur. Uh, I think that's going to happen. And then the question, you know, I think what you're asking is, can that be abused? Of course, (laughs) you know, there's always a possibility of of over supplementing tryptophan or over supplementing phenylalanine or you know, over supplementing something. The good news with leucine literally doesn't seem to be an upper limit to leucine. It's been tested up to 35 grams per day. uh, And it seems to be perfectly safe. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, amino acid by amino acid, methionine probably shouldn't be supplemented. I, I think one of the newest things in protein has actually been the understanding about distribution of protein. We've always thought it was just about total amount per day. But what we've learned as we've been studying older adults is that it's really also about distribution. And the most important meal is breakfast. And I I actually change that and call it the first meal of the day. It's when you come out of your overnight fast. And so people are talking about time-restricted eating and things like that. It doesn't matter if it's 7 in the morning or 11.30 in the morning. That first meal needs to be high protein. And we consider... We think the target is at least three grams of leucine. And so that puts you in about a 40 gram protein range. And that's really new research that has just come out in the last few years. And it's beginning to show up in recommendations, distributing the protein. We also know that from a muscle standpoint, there's probably a maximum effect of protein. And we know that if you get above 55 or 60 grams in an individual meal, you're probably not getting much benefit from it. Interesting. 
Um, you'll hear some trainers say, well, you can't absorb more than 30 grams at a meal. That's nonsense. You'll absorb all of it, but you don't get a real muscle effect. So we know that you need a minimum of about 30 grams at a meal, and you probably get a maximum plateau around 55 or 60. So that's kind of the sweet spot of protein. Athletes who want a lot of protein, what we would probably recommend is they go to four meals. So they distribute it across more meals where they stay in that sort of 40 to 50 gram range. So for people that eat two meals a day, and there's a lot of people in the carnivore space and keto space that eat one meal a day, you don't recommend that in terms of muscle synthesis. In terms of maintaining muscle, I would like to see it spread across two meals of protein. Uh, One sort of earliest in the day when you're kind of getting going and another before you go into sleep. So people, I tend to try and go with two meals a day. And so my first meal might very well be 1030 or 11. And then my last meal will be 630 or seven. And in between, I would have very little. So, you know, I think, um, you know, time restricted feeding, uh, I think athletes with four meals spread about, we know that optimally for muscle, you need to spread it about four to five hours apart. So those are, you know, some of the things we've learned from sort of distribution research. And then in terms of the morning, why is it so important that we get that protein in the morning or the first meal? Yeah. So when you're fasting overnight, your, your muscle go into a catabolic period Mm -hmm. about five hours after a meal. So at night, you're 12 hours after your last meal. So you're breaking down protein. And in the typical American diet where we don't eat protein until seven at night, that means you're spending 20, 22 hours a day catabolic. And we think that is a big reason behind sarcopenia weight loss, you know, muscle loss with aging. And so we think distributing it through the day. And that's what we've done in our, our weight loss studies is distribute the protein when we got the, you know, maintaining only 5% loss, part of it's distributing the protein, part of its resistance, part of its total protein. Uh, Doug Patton Jones did it with bed rest. Um, We've done it with post-surgery. We know that that first meal is pretty critical for muscle health. And then what about the fasting window? Let's say I fast 18 hours. Do you think it's less ideal that I'm fasting 18 hours before I have a first meal of protein? Um, I think it depends on your level of stress. So as a healthy 20-year-old, I think you're fine. You're physically active. It's not going to make much difference. If you're a relatively sedentary uh, 70-year-old, I think that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. I think that allowing that catabolic period to go longer is a big mistake. We know that when you lose lean mass after the age of 40, it's extremely hard to get it back. If you lose lean mass when you're 25, chances are you can recover it. But if if you're 55, chances are it's a permanent loss. Okay. That that makes so much sense. So my parents are ketogenic, but they eat very heavy meat. And in the morning at five o'clock, they literally have a lot of meat. And I always never thought it made sense, but they're 70 years old and it just works for them. So they eat so much meat, probably 40, 50 grams in the morning. And then they have another meal later on. But I always wondered how do they have such an appetite in the morning, but it probably makes sense from a protein standpoint. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's important for the muscle health. I think it's important the more catabolic you get, older, bed rest, surgery, weight loss, any of those things, I think that first meal becomes more and more important. Um, you know, I, my first meal is a protein shake. It's just convenient for me. So, uh, you know, I tend to do a whey protein shake early in the day. And do you think in terms of the absorption, um, the protein shakes are similar to eating real meats? Yeah, I think so. Um, I would, what we know from protein shakes is they tend to absorb faster. Right. That makes sense. So you probably get a bigger muscle effect quicker, mm-hmm. uh, where the meat will digest somewhat slower. And again, depending on the amount of fat with it, even slower. So you probably can get a bigger bang for your buck or, 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 uh, you know, a bigger effect on muscle with less calories using a whey protein than with meat. But, you know, if you're getting 40, 45 grams, it doesn't matter which source you're using. As we close, um, your concern about carnivore is 
Is it the level of amino acids? Is it the hundred grams of carbs that you think we need as, and that we are now forcing our body to use as gluconeogenesis? What is the, I guess, the my, extreme- concern, my concern is the topics that you raised and okay. that's glucose fluctuations, you know, why tolerate it? Why deal with that? What's the benefit? You know, I, I mean, I guess it's a way of controlling calories, but there are other ways of controlling calories. Sure. You know, there are keto methods. There are, you know, so, you know, if it works fine, but don't complain about hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia and insulin swings and all, because that's what you'd expect. Right. <laughs> so I don't, um, have, I don't have a particular problem with it from quote, a toxicity. Okay. The problem is just simply living with it. Sure. And I don't, I don't think everyone goes through those hypoglycemic hyper. I, I think it's a, exactly. subs- right. So I, I think it depends. And that's where I'm always yeah. open to sharing content from not just the carnivore community, because I hate to be in a silo. And for some people like my husband, he refuses to do carnivore because he can tolerate 150 grams of carbs. Yeah. He does explosive works outs and it works for him. But I know for me, I probably can't do 150 grams of carbs, depending on the type of carbs um, to eat just vegetables and try to get to 150 carbs is pretty difficult unless I'm eating more starchy vegetables. And that becomes a slippery slope for me. So I think you're and I get I get that. And like I said, the body is pretty amazing in sort of biomachinery being able to adapt to a lot of different kinds of diets and quote, the younger you are, the more adaptable you are, the closer you get to my age, you'll find the less adaptable you right. are. And, uh, you know, our bodies are willing to adapt across pretty big ranges when you're young. Um, and so, you know, I think whatever works is kind of okay, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Sure. And what I find objectionable is this sort of dietary moral superiority that people seem to think they have that I am, you know, I'm keto, I'm vegan, I'm carnivore. I don't care. Right. No, no, no. I, I, and I'm right there with you. I, I purposely don't say that I'm just carnivore because I don't want people to think it's, it shouldn't be dogma. I'm on the Judy Cho diet. That's essentially what it is. It's we, we have to find the balance that works for us. And there shouldn't be a dogma as this diet is worse. I mean, I do think plant-based is not ideal for many of the reasons you brought up in this way of eating, but, um, but there are people that thrive on it and they maybe have the genetic aptitude, or maybe they have the wherewithal to know what to supplement in their diet. I mean, it just, it really depends. I just really want to help people find levers to improve their way of eating. Maybe after this conversation, some people that are struggling with hypoglycemia on a carnivore diet may realize maybe I just need to try some healthy carbs and, and I'm totally supportive of that if it works for them. And that's, that's the key is finding everyone's bio individual needs and what works. And to your earlier point, you, you know, if you're in that situation, you want to go to low glycemic carbs, you don't want to, you know, your, your introduction to, to carbs shouldn't be processed rice or, or white bread, you know, it ought to be vegetables and, and, you know, whole, you know, very whole grain types of things and things that are slower to digest. And so, you know, you've got to be sensible about how you use it too. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people find more about your research and more about you? Um, well, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find if you Google my research. So that's out there. Um, I actually have just launched a website called metabolictransformation.com. And so if people are interested in a lot of the philosophy and the metabolism, and the muscle centric health, that's there. So, you know, pre- please go look at it. We're actually about to launch a weight loss diet within that. So if people go and they can sign up probably, hopefully by the end of June, we'll actually launch our weight loss uh, program there. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, they can find me on Twitter or at, at Don Lehman. And uh, I'm pretty easy to find at the University of Illinois. It's, it's D Lehman at Illinois.edu. So anyway, but please visit the website. Metabolic Transformation has a lot of interesting information. It's got some calculators, tools, and just some fun things to look at. So join us there. After a while, we'll also uh, introduce a Q&A sort of session. So. Okay. And I'll put everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was so helpful. My pleasure. 
Yes, this was so helpful. And I think um, it's so important to talk about all the different amino acids. And um, I love that you guys are working on all this data to really support um, the level of amino acids we need, because I think it, like you said, it's a discussion that's not really being said. Yeah, and I think it is the next level of understanding it. Uh, I've been saying that for quite a few years, and now we've got the opportunity to actually make some progress on it. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you so much. Thanks, Judy. Okay, guys, I hope that this interview has provided you another lever to get to optimal healing. This conversation explains one other reason why I'm not the biggest fan of one meal a day or OMAD. And it also helps to understand why we should prioritize protein even in the morning. I know that Dr. Lehman is not the biggest fan of carnivore and thinks it's an extreme dislike plant-based. And I get it. But when we talked about adding fat or having carnivore as a ketogenic diet version of carnivore, then the conversation is a little bit different. Ketogenic diets can be used long-term as he said, but maybe then the key is eating a carnivore diet that is a ketogenic version, meaning that you are producing enough ketones and a ketogenic state. This may be why one of the reasons I am a big fan of higher fat carnivore, it may just be that it's because it's more sustainable because it is a ketogenic variety, whatever works for you. And if your markers look good and you sleep well and you feel good, then I wouldn't worry too much about, should I go higher fat or not? Just again, go with how you feel. And this is really just to give you another tool of how to get to optimal healing. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.